Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of The Five By, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. Sit back and relax with your beverage of choice as we discuss some games we've been enjoying over the summer. Mike and Sarah are headed into the garden this week as they explore Lotus and Cottage Garden, respectively. I'm, however, staying inside to play with marbles and Potion Explosion, while Stephanie's collecting gems in Istanbul, the dice game. But first, here's Mason, starting us off with his thoughts on the silly rank-and-roll fun found in Quingo. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Quingo. That's Q-W-I-N-G-O. There are a number of games out there using the QW naming convention, and I think it can be difficult to keep them straight. Quingo, published by GameRight, is a pencil game from 2015 by Heinz Meister, who's a prolific designer of both children's and light family games. Quingo is dead simple. Call out a number between 1 and 100, then roll the die. You have a sheet with five columns of different colors. In ascending order, you're going to write the number you called out in the column matching the die face. Everyone plays on every turn, and you win by filling a column with numbers. Quingo is one of the easiest games we play regularly, and we've played it a lot, over 25 times since we got it a couple of months ago. It's short, it's fun, it's maddening to lose, and you immediately want to play it again. And it's a very low cognitive load game, which is good for me, especially on weeknights. Quingo is a little game you could teach in under five minutes to absolutely anyone who's old enough to read and write and count on their own. You start the game by writing the numbers 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 on your sheet, each in one of the five columns. Each column has 12 spaces, and for beginners, there's actually a recommended way to start your sheet. As I've played more and more, I've started changing up the way I start my sheets, and I've found it can really radically alter the way I play. There are 60 different possible start positions for each column, which means there are thousands and thousands of different start positions for the entire sheet. The long-term variability, I think, keeps the game fresh and allows you to really stretch and experiment as you grow as a player. But what are you actually doing in Quingo? How do you decide what number to call out? Early in the game, it honestly doesn't make a ton of difference. If you're playing with someone who has trouble making decisions, you could absolutely use a random number generator for the maybe first three or four turns. But after you start to get some numbers filled in, the decisions ramp up pretty quickly. You'll know after a few turns which columns you're likely to get filled, and so you'll want to go after the numbers that are the greatest benefit to you, but help your opponents the least. This is not always possible, since everyone must write the number called out in the column on the die, you're almost always helping someone else, especially in higher player counts. So how is it anything but pure luck? Well, it is heavily luck-dependent, certainly, especially with five players, but I think it's still a lot of fun. It can be difficult to keep track of what everyone else is doing at the table, and so it's much more likely that you're going to tie. If two or more players finish on the same turn, you look at the second most filled-in columns. Oh, you forgot to pay attention to a second column? Well, sorry, dummy, you lose. There are only five columns, but a die has six faces, and the wild side of the die drives a lot of important decisions. You can put a wild number in any column, and more of our games than not have hinged on a player making the best use of those opportunities. At two-player, Quingo runs about ten minutes. We almost always play multiple times. I taught it to a regular light game group, and a first play, even at five people, only ran about twenty minutes, including teaching. I think it definitely takes playing it for it to click, as new players will likely get halfway through the first game and say, oh dear, I've made a terrible mistake. What those mistakes are, I will leave you to discover on your own. Quingo was originally published by Schmidt Spiel back in 2015 under the title Top 12. GameRight picked it up in 2017 and has repackaged it in one of their nice little flip-top boxes, which is the same form factor they use for Quicks and Rolling America. This little game is perfectly priced at around $10. I think it would make a great choice to play while waiting for a meal or at the bar, provided you don't drop the die under the table. Replacement pads of sheets are available from GameRite, and I've actually chosen not to laminate this one. 
The game sheets are double-sided, and the spaces to write in are fairly small, so I'm not sure that any of the dry erase markers I have would be a good fit for it. A note on accessibility, the columns and corresponding die faces are both color and symbol coded, so people who are colorblind or have low vision should be able to play. If you're going to play with younger kids, it might be helpful to scan and enlarge the sheets, as children may find it difficult to write in the small spaces. I dearly love this silly little game, and it occupies a space in my life not many other games do. That is something I am always willing to play. The Cult of Complexity believes that the more moving parts, the more rules, the more pieces a game has, the better it is. Rating a game a perfect 10 because it has so many moving parts that it blows your mind is just dumb to me. Some of the loudest voices in tabletop games are the prime movers for newer, bigger, more, and the reality is that the fun math just doesn't support them. What is fun math, you ask? Well, fun math is a rhetorical formula that I use to determine the real value of a game. It's basically total cost per fun unit. It's price, plus shelf space, plus emotional load, which is the complexity to learn, teach, and remember a game, divided by the number of plays per year, divided by how much you enjoy it. So, sure, Twilight Imperium is huge and expensive, and you don't play it very often. But if it's a destination game for you, if it's a big event game that you talk about for months afterward, then the fun math checks out on it. Quingo has ideal fun math. Small box, cheap, easy to teach and remember, play it often, and I always enjoy it. I think you should buy it, but you could also just play it with a piece of notebook paper and any old D6. It's widely available from both large brick-and-mortar retailers as well as online. So who should buy Quingo? People who play games with coworkers. People who play games with kids. People who play games with non-gamers. People who carry games around with them. And people who play games just because they're silly fun. I give Quingo 12 out of 12 good banana rolls and not that damn blue coffee cup. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. In 2017, Renegade Games sent their first representative to SaltCon to run a booth. Given their string of hits at the time, I was thrilled, and they were quite literally the first place I went after getting my tag. Turns out the guy running the booth was someone who owned a game store in Idaho, and it just packed up all his renegade games and came down, but that hardly mattered to me. He was super nice, knowledgeable, friendly, and generous with his time. We chatted for a while and I bought several games, one of which was Lotus, because while I didn't know much about it, I'd at least heard the name before, the art was nice, and I assumed it would make a nice game with the family. But walking around the rest of the day carrying the box, I had several people tell me what a mean game Lotus was, how you steal points from other players, and I started to have doubts. And I started to have doubts. After listening it as purchased on BGG, the designers Jordan and Mandy Goddard reached out to say that they hoped I liked the game. And, as I usually do, rather than give the bad news that I wasn't planning on playing the game, I just didn't reply. Because while I regularly see snide comments from people on how designers and publishers are starting to put out games as money grabs, I'm still convinced that the overwhelming majority of designers, artists, and publishers are putting out games that they personally hope we like. Why waste that much time and effort on a game that you don't at least hope that most people will consider an 8 plus out of 10? Anyway, the point is, I almost sold Lotus at this year's SaltCon market, but pulled it back at the last minute, and I'm glad I did. In Lotus, we all have a hand of four petal cards and are trying to build flowers. Each type of flower takes a different number of cards to build, from three card iris to the seven card lotus. Each card has zero to two of your player symbols on them, and you are trying to keep a majority of your own symbols on each flower, in addition to being the one who places the last petal, because only the person who placed the final petal gets the points. This is where all that cutting in to take someone's flower comes from. But before then, can we talk about how amazing the art is? 
It is beautiful. And as you are building the flowers, you arrange the cards in an overlapping card circle that looks like an actual flower. It's really cool and helps elevate the table appeal of Lotus. Whoever places the last petal on each flower keeps those cards as points. As you can only place a maximum of two, and eventually three petals on your turn, this means you're leaving partially finished flowers out there. And with an initial hand limit of four, you often don't know when you'll finish that flower either. But if you get a tie for the majority of your symbols on the flower, either through your cards or by adding your tokens to the flower with one of your two actions, then you get a bonus. Bonuses can upgrade your hand limit to five, allow you to now add up to three petals to a flower each turn, gives you a grande token for adding two control points to a flower, or just straight up gives you five points. In my personal experience, you always upgrade first and then go for the additional points, but maybe that's just us. So I just said you cut in on other people's flowers with your own petal cards or control tokens. So why don't I find Lotus to be too mean? I suppose it's because it's spread out in expected behavior. When I start a flower, I don't expect it to come back to me, especially in a three or four player game. And that's okay. Other opportunities will come my way later. And at that point, I have to ask myself if I really want to close out that flower or leave it open, but put more control tokens on it because the upgrade abilities are nice and really help me to control my hand better. Another way to control your hand is to exchange petal cards. As an action, you can cycle up to two petals from your hand to the bottom of your deck and immediately draw two new cards. This is great if you're going for common cards, but I've had mixed success using this strategy. Sometimes I get so caught up in trying to find the perfect card that I lose the game because I was cycling cards rather than building flowers. The last way to get that perfect petal card in your hand is to use the wild petal byro. At the end of your turn, you can either refill your hand from your face down draw deck or draw from the face up wildcard byro. These cards don't have your symbols on them, but they can be the perfect card to finish off a flower if it's still there when your turn comes around again. So, like I said, I'm glad I kept Lotus and gave it a try, but it's not all sunshine and pretty flowers. I do have a couple concerns with the game. First, two player games can get pretty lopsided if someone is getting great draws and the other player isn't. It isn't an issue overall, but I've noticed a runaway leader more often in two-player games than in three or four-player. Second, this game expects some pretty good fine motor skills to arrange the cards into flowers. It's super cool that the outline for the next card is there to help guide you in the construction, but it's not the easiest, especially for the higher petal count flowers. You could just build a row of petals to solve the problem, but that would take a bit away from the table appeal. There's also an iOS app implementation that you can play instead. And last, but certainly not least, I'm not a big fan of the theming of this abstract game. Don't get me wrong, building flowers is brilliant, but naming it Lotus and having an Asian woman on the cover when no Asian people appear to have worked on that game just isn't right. It's an issue that I hope more and more publishers are starting to note. I know I'm not the best at noticing these things, but I'm trying to get better. So that's Lotus, a beautiful flower building, area control, set collecting game that works a little better at 3 and 4 players. I hope you give it a try. If you'd like to discuss Lotus or anything else, you can always reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, donning my Slytherin scarf and Hufflepuff sweater despite the summer heat. You see, wizarding schools have earned a special place in many people's hearts, including mine, thanks to Harry Potter and similar stories. Various tabletop games have used this type of setting in the 20-some years since The Philosopher's Stone was released in 1997, and one such game is Potion Explosion from Cool Mini or Not, published in 2015. The game is set in a potions classroom where players attempt to prove themselves 
the best student brewer. Designed by Lorenzo Silva, Andrea Crespi, and Stefano Cristelli, this is a charming, quick-playing game that's sure to draw attention thanks to both the whimsical art of Giulia Gigni and the unique way players will be gathering their ingredients. The game is specifically set during the potions class final exam, and so players must race to earn points by impressing the professor with perfect potions. He offers additional rewards for both consistency and variety, giving ribbons to students who successfully brew sets of matching potions or a larger set of different concoctions. In order to create their potions, students follow recipes using some or all of four different ingredients in various quantities. These are picked out of a dispenser in the middle of the table. The dispenser has five channels down which ingredients in the form of colored marbles roll. Should a student pull an ingredient and cause two or more matching ingredients to touch, well, they get to take those ingredients as well. Should removing these ingredients cause another collision of matching ingredients, well, they get those as well. That's right. Potion Explosion uses marbles rolling down shoots to provide a real-life working implementation of a match-three game. And it's not just a gimmick. Players can carefully set up combos to grab as many marbles as possible in order to finish up their potions quickly and efficiently, as when all of those extra point ribbons are gone, the game's over. But the potions you're brewing in Potion Explosion aren't just worth points towards your final grade. They can also be drunk for in-game effects, helping players complete impressive turns by breaking the rolls. When setting up the game, players select six of eight possible potion types to use, providing a selection of special actions. These can either be randomly selected or chosen carefully to be more or less complicated depending on the player's familiarity with the game. You can pull off some really satisfying turns by spotting the perfect marble cascade by drinking the right potion at the right time, or by doing both of those things at once. Those aha moments of spotting the perfect move make players feel really clever, and they more than make up for those other turns where you stare at the dispenser ignoring the player next to you as they smirk and watch you try to figure out what great move they can see and you can't. This is a game that new people tend to want to play again in order to see what the other potions do, and it's so much fun that I'm more than willing to oblige. Not to mention the combination of the satisfying click-clack of marbles coming together and the groans that you get when you steal someone's marbles. Well, it's a really good soundtrack for a game night. Now, the initial assembly of the punchboard ingredient dispenser can seem intimidating, but it's actually only a one-time event, as the box has been designed to hold it once it's put together. The two-page spread showing the steps for construction are very well done and have a number of callouts mentioning times you might want to take extra care. In fact, the rulebook overall has clearly been laid out with an eye to avoiding any stumbling blocks that might stop players from getting started, and Heiko Gunther's graphic design is wonderfully clear. I was able to put the dispenser together fairly easily, although one piece sometimes comes a little loose when I lift it. I'll likely add a little glue to it, but so far it's been solid enough that I haven't bothered. Once assembled, the dispenser is an impressive centerpiece, and I was actually even more impressed when I noticed that you can have one of two different styles of dispenser depending on which side of the punch board you face out. You could either have a pristine, nice new dispenser, or one that's been left worn and cracked by generations of students use. As I mentioned, the box has a well-designed insert that lets the dispenser fit into it fully assembled. The rulebook also has a very nice diagram that details how to fit everything back into the box safely so you can make sure it all stays where it's supposed to be. In addition to a great insert, the box also had a small bag of replacement marbles so that having one of your ingredients roll under the couch doesn't mean your game is now unplayable. 
these are small details, but they're the kind of details I really appreciate when I'm opening up a new game. Overall, Potion Explosion is a great production, components and art together. And while I've seen aftermarket laser cut dispensers, I'm actually not willing to give up the charming appearance of the one that comes in the box, even if I do need to glue it together. What you get in the box, as well as that great dispenser, is a really fun physical implementation of a Match 3 video game. Potion Explosion is relatively easy to teach to inexperienced gamers, but it still retains enough interest and sheer fun for more seasoned or jaded players, so it's an excellent addition to game night, and it's a game that I am not getting rid of anytime soon. I highly recommend trying the base game if you get an opportunity, and I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on the expansion to see exactly what it has to add. So until next time, when I'm not creating strange smoking concoctions, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Truth be told, I don't get to play as many games as I used to. Don't get me wrong, I still play a lot of games. More than your average person, I'm sure. But with trying to balance work and school and binge-watching stuff on Netflix, board gaming is often something where I'm looking to get a lot of bang for my game time bucks. So when someone asks me, hey, want to play Istanbul? My mind starts to question if an hour or more is something I can really invest in a game these days. But Istanbul the dice game? Now that's just what I'm looking for. Released in 2017, Istanbul the Dice Game is sort of the kid sibling to the bigger version. While thematically, you're doing many of the same things you do in Istanbul. Resource conversion, managing goods, and so forth. In this dice version, you get to play a shaved down version of this very popular game. And I mean that in the best way possible. It takes what the original does well and chisels it down to just that. Plus dice. Dice are always going to be a big plus for me. But it feels like I'm doing Istanbul the dice game a disservice by only comparing it to the original. This is a quality game in and of itself, regardless of the title's history. So let's talk about the gameplay. In Istanbul the dice game, you are competing against your fellow players to be the first to collect enough rubies to emerge as the best trader in the bazaar. At the start of the game, the game board is set up with available resources, rubies to collect, bazaar cards to draw, and mosque tiles to earn. All players start with a crystal that can be used to re-roll dice during gameplay. A start player is chosen who gets the pleasure of kicking off the game, but doing so with no scratch to their name. Going clockwise, each player receives one coin more than the player to their right. Now, it's time to start. The first player rolls five dice, and based on those results, the player can take up to two actions. Each player has a player guide, giving sort of the conversion rate, if you will, of the dice to available actions. Two dice with the same symbol can be traded for a resource tile. Dice with coin symbols can be used to add to your coffer. Or if you roll well, you could draft a mosque tile, which gives you an ongoing advantage. Bizarre cards are also an option for a quick one-time push. It's all about how kind your dice are treating you and how well you're managing your resources for the present and for the future. 
So let's say you've managed your resources well. You can now use coins or combinations of goods and dice to purchase one of those coveted rubies. But each time one is acquired, the next one becomes that much more expensive. Rubies are the name of the game after all, but this escalating cost ensures no one runs away with the game in spite of how strong their economic engine is churning. Look, I know the luck factor is high with dice games, but there are enough fail-safes to make sure that player skill and strategy wins games, not just fortunate dice rolls. Play continues until someone has collected enough rubies to trigger the end of the game, remaining players get one more turn, and a final winner is declared. Istanbul the Dice Game plays two to four players in about 20 to 30 minutes, about half the playtime of the original. And this is one of those games where the time goes by really quickly, but you constantly feel like you're doing something, planning something. It's a lot of play in 30 minutes, and turns seem to flow well and quickly at that. Istanbul the Dice Game retails for about $25, and with the quality of components and high chance of replayability, for me at least, it's a great value. Is it as robust as its predecessor? No, but who cares? Not every game has to be big to be good, and not every reimagining of a game needs to be compared to the original. This little game stands up on its own and stands up proud and strong. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, stay playful. When I lived in an apartment, I imagined gardening was like on the TV shows. You stroll around admiring nature's beauty, there's never a weed to be found, and the most difficult task is deciding how to arrange your perfectly manicured flower beds. Then I moved into a house and found out that gardening is hard work, an endless series of sweaty, back-breaking chores. But thanks to Uwe Rosenberg's game Cottage Garden, I can have that mild, gentle fun I thought gardening would be. Published in 2016 by Stronghold Games, Cottage Garden has you placing polyomino-shaped flower tiles into square garden beds. Each bed comes with a few flower pots printed on it, and you can fill in gaps between the flower tiles with more pots. Flower pots are good because they increase the score for each garden bed, but they're also small, so the more turns you spend adding flower pots to your garden, the longer it will take you to fill the bed. You have two garden beds going at all times, and whenever you complete one, you score it and start another. So it's in your best interest to finish the garden beds as quickly as possible. Along with the flower pots, there are also cats. Adorable little cats who sleep in the garden. You start with a couple of cats and gain more as scoring bonuses. Cats don't add to your score, but you can use them to fill holes in your garden and finish a bed more quickly. Cottage Garden is the first game in Rosenberg's puzzle trilogy of relaxing polyomino games, which also includes Indian Summer and the soon-to-be-released Spring Meadow. Rosenberg also designed two more games around polyominoes, or Tetris shapes, the award-winning two-player game Patchwork, and the heavier Euro game A Feast for Odin. Cottage Garden is a simple game, a bit more complex than Patchwork, but still easy for an occasional game player to pick up. It also has a simplified rules variant that allows young children to play. In Cottage Garden, the supply of flower tiles is laid out in a 4x4 grid, and the row or column each player can choose from changes with each turn. This provides an interesting bit of suspense as you look ahead to see which row or column will be yours to choose from on your next turn. Rows aren't refilled until they're almost empty, and you might have only a couple of options depending on what the players before you took. You can spend a cat to refill a row early, but you don't get new cats that often, 
So this is probably something you only want to do if you really can't use anything in the available row. The extra tiles that don't fit on the grid are lined up in a single ring around it, and you keep track of the start of the ring with a wheelbarrow, an adorable little three-dimensional wheelbarrow made of heavy cardboard. Besides marking the start of the extra tiles, it holds the flower pot supply. For me, the wheelbarrow is a triumph of the fun, pretty, not strictly necessary component. There doesn't need to be a wheelbarrow. You could use anything to mark the start of the extra tiles, and you could keep the extra flower pot supply in a little pile. But it's so cute, and I love pushing the little wheelbarrow forward every time we refill the tiles on the grid. Another interesting complication is that the game has a timer, measured by trips around the board. A large die serves as a counter, and when all the rows and columns on the grid have been chosen from, the counter goes up. After that happens five times, a final round begins. In the final round, you discard any flower beds that are empty or almost empty, and finish whatever's left. Most importantly, there's a penalty in the final round. Every turn until you complete your final garden bed, you have to move backward on the scoring track. A crucial part of Cottage Garden is paying attention to the timing and making sure your garden beds are full or almost full when that final round begins. If you time this right, you'll be done early and can enjoy a little schadenfreude as everyone else scrambles to finish their garden beds. If not, you'll be the one losing points in every turn, hoping to fill that last garden bed fast enough that it isn't a net loss for you. Scoring in the final round is complicated and a bit fussy, and is my only real issue with Cottage Garden. It makes the game more complex than patchwork, but not more challenging, just less elegant. Players who time it right and finish up as the final round begins have to sit and wait, while everyone else deals with that fiddly moving cubes backward and forward on the scoring track. It doesn't add a whole lot of fun to the game. It kind of feels like complication for the sake of complication. Still, this is a minor criticism of a lovely game. Cottage Garden is as relaxing as a garden stroll, a great game when you want social time with friends rather than a serious strategic challenge. The art by Andrea Bukoff is so charming and is a big part of Cottage Garden's appeal to me. Each tile has a beautiful illustration of flowers, with elements scattered throughout like watering cans, a cup of tea on a lacy tablecloth, things that you might find in your perfectly imagined little cottage garden. Not the old gloves and muddy clogs and well-worn tools that I find in my real garden. But Cottage Garden isn't about the sweat and hard labor of real gardening. It's about the fantasy of relaxing in a cheerful cottage garden, tea time and kitties napping among the flower beds. And that's Cottage Garden. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not pushing a wheelbarrow around the garden, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. You've been listening to The 5 By, the all-stuff, no-fluff, and just long-enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 games Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 By, thanks for listening. The 5 By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.